Okay, good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Wealthy Educator, where we recognize and empower educators and others alike. Before we introduce our guests, let me tell you about a great opportunity. We will be giving away five copies of The Simple Path to Wealth. For your chance to win, please like and share this video on Facebook, then head over to The Wealthy Educator on YouTube and subscribe to the channel. Once these steps are complete, email thewealthyeducator at gmail.com with your name and location, and you will be entered into the live drawing that will take place at 5 p.m. Central Standard Time on Friday, March 5th. What if someone told you that the path to wealth is very simple? Not easy, but simple. That's exactly what my guest is here to discuss with us today. Mr. J.L. Collins is known for his stock series and his book, The Simple Path to Wealth. He has been featured on many podcasts and documentaries. He is known as the godfather of the financial independence movement. Simply put, I refer to him as the F.I. GOAT. Ladies and gentlemen, I welcome Mr. J.L. Collins. J.L., how are you today? Rashad, I'm doing great, thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to be here, wow. What an introduction, but before we go any further, I just want to send a shout out to my favorite soon to be 10 year old. <laughs> Happy birthday tomorrow. <laughs> Happy birthday tomorrow, Nia. From your um, pal, JL, thank you for recognizing my voice. Awesome, well, okay, I guess I have to tell the story then. Is that okay with you? That's okay with me, or we could just let everybody wonder who Nia is and what this connection is, but it's <laughs> well, up to you. <laughs> well, I, I'll quickly tell it. Well, basically, Mr. Collins, uh, JL, as he would like to be referred to, JL is one of the most requested speakers in our country, especially when it comes to finances and financial independence. So people wonder, they even asked me, how did you get JL Collins to agree to interview with you? Well, it's simple. You know, I was listening to YouTube one day, and as I always do, and his voice is always on my YouTube channel. <laughs> and my daughter was sitting with her brothers one day and she just said, hey, is that J.L. Collins? So I looked around and said, what did you say? She said, is that J.L. Collins? I said, yeah, that's J.L. Collins. How'd you know? She said, daddy, you are always playing Mr. Collins. <laughs> True story. So I happened to go over to the Choose FI group on Facebook and I just said, hey, my FI win for the day is that my nine-year-old daughter recognized J.L. Collins' voice. And someone happened to actually tag DJL Collins in that post. And then I trolled him and I sent him a message. <laughs> he actually <laughs> responded and the rest is history. So here we are. And I'm delighted to have him here. I think that anybody who wants to create a financial path for themselves, you know, will, will really benefit from what he has to say today. Now we well, have give, about give, an hour, give, but- Give me a hug for me when you, when you see her tonight. I will give her a big, huge hug for you, just for you. Yeah, she's got a big place in my heart. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, so why don't you go ahead and tell tell the audience about the story with your daughter and just let uh, everybody know, you know, the why behind your blog and your book. And then, you know, just go just go ahead with that. And what is the simple path to wealth? Well, that well, that covers a lot of ground. I'll start with the with the story of my daughter and, and we can go from there. Uh all of this evolved. I, I have a, a very firm belief that, that we live in a complex society. 
And the most powerful tool we have at our disposal to navigate and survive and prosper in this society is money. And the better you understand money and investing, the easier your life will be. The less well you understand it, the harder your life will be. And of course, like any parent, I wanted my child's life to be as good and to have as many opportunities and the path to be as smooth as possible. The problem is I started pushing this stuff way too young for her. I mean, who would have thought that a, that a four-year-old wouldn't want to dive into the Wall Street Journal with me, but it turns out she didn't. And the net result of that is I turned her off to these financial things. And because I turned her off, and because none of us know how long we have on earth, at some point I decided I better write these things down in case I'm not around when she develops hopefully an interest in this. So I started writing a series of letters to her about things financial. And a business associate of mine who I shared them with said, you know, that's kind of interesting stuff. You might want to create a blog for your friends and family. And I didn't particularly have any interest in creating a blog, but the, I like the idea of, of that way to archive the information rather than just sheets of paper lying around somewhere. So I created the blog and I began to put these things down uh, for her and, and I sent an email around to friends and family letting them know because why not? Of course, none of them cared. And, uh, but slowly or surely, as I wrote more of this stuff, I began to develop what's turned into an international audience today. And uh, I wound up writing the stock series and the stock series has 32 posts to it. I think something like that now. Mm -hmm. My original plan was only five. When I first conceived of the idea, I had the first five posts in mind. And then with questions and feedback from my readers, uh, other topics came to light. So that's how that evolved. And from the stock series came the book you were kind enough to mention, uh, The Simple Path to Wealth. And and now I get asked to do interviews from cool guys like you. So here we are. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know, a lot of my audience, of course, you know, as I told you before, are educators. And I also look at public servants because I really appreciate firefighters, police officers, you know, yeah. like that. And a lot of time we aren't necessarily educated. We don't really know much about finances. Uh, you know, when we had the whole GameStop fiasco, you can't I can't tell you how many messages I received from people saying, hey, I want to start investing in stocks. And I'm like, <laughs> hold on now. <laughs> First of all, I don't invest in stocks. I don't invest in same stocks. I don't play around with that. And, you know, if you do that, you're going to get burned. So then I always refer people to your stock series on Choose If I always send one of those links or, or your book or something like that. So if you could kind of explain to the audience, you know, what are, what are stocks, what are bonds, mutual funds, index funds, those things? Sure. So uh, stock, when you own stock, when you buy a stock, what you're doing is you're, you're buying an ownership, a piece of the ownership of that company. So you mentioned GameStop. So let's just use that as an example. If you buy stock in GameStop, you now own a part of GameStop, probably a very small part of it. But nevertheless, in a very real sense, you own a tangible part of that business for better or worse. Um, 
if you own a bond, uh, if you buy a bond from either a government agency like the U.S. Treasury or, or maybe a state bond that's issued to fund the building of roads or, or what have you, you're basically now loaning your money out. You're not, you're not buying a, a piece of a company or an organization. You're loaning the money to them. And the way bonds work is they typically have a maturity when the bond has to be paid back and between the date you buy it or the date it's issued and that maturity, there's a set interest rate that is depending on what the competitive market says that government or company has to pay to, to find people who are willing to buy their bonds to loan them money. So if you own stock, you own a piece of the organization. If you own a bond, you've, lend, you've loaned money to somebody. Now, mutual funds are, are run by investment companies. And basically what they do is they take your investment money and my investment money and the investment money of many, many other people, and they pool it together. And each mutual fund will have its own set of objectives. So there are mutual funds that invest in bonds. There are mutual funds that invest in stocks. There are mutual funds that invest in both that are called balance funds. And then there are all kinds of different ways to invest in stocks. So you can, they can invest in certain stock sectors. They can invest in certain size companies, what's called large cap, which just basically means a big company, mid cap, which just means a middle uh, sized company, or small cap, which is small company. So they can do it that way. Um, I'm a believer in what are called index funds. And index funds simply buy every fund that's tracked by a given index. And the index I prefer is the total stock market index. And that means that essentially when you buy a total stock market index fund, you now own a piece of every publicly traded company in the United States. And that gives you a very broad diversification, which is what I like and a very low cost. I, when I own bonds, to the extent that I own them, I own them in the total bond market index fund, which is similar to the total stock market fund, only now you're owning all these bonds. So does that make sense? Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. So let me ask you this. What if you have someone that decides, hey, you know, I'm going to purchase stock in Apple. I'm going to purchase stock in Nike. I'm going to purchase stock in these companies that have been around, you know, for my 30 or 40 years on earth that have been doing well for a long time. I know that they're going to be successful for the rest of my life in 50 to hundred years from now. What would your pushback be on that? If they say, Hey, I don't need to invest in an index fund. Well, I guess my pushback would be, uh, how do you feel about Polaroid? How do you feel about Xerox? How do you feel about General Motors? Um, 50 years ago, maybe a little more than 50 years ago, uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, somewhere in there, uh, some of the smart guys on Wall Street came up with the, what they called the Nifty 50, which was exactly what you're describing. They said, you know, if you buy these 50 stocks, which are the dominant players in, in the U.S. economy, you know, the best companies in the U.S., if you buy them and you just put them away, you're done. You, you, you know, these companies are going to be here for the rest of your life. They're going to, you know, they're going to be the dominant companies forever and you never have to make another decision. 
Well, you fast forward to today, and a lot of them are unrecognizable names because companies have a life cycle. So right now, Amazon and Tesla and Apple and, and what have you are the dominant companies. That doesn't mean they're going to stay the dominant companies. Put that in perspective. Um, the Dow Industrial Average was created sometime in the very late 1800s. And I think there were 20 stocks initially. Now it's the Dow 30. And I used to ask people, so how many of those are those companies originally on the Dow do you think are still on the Dow today? And my trick answer was there was one, General Electric. Well, now even General Electric has fallen off the Dow. So companies have lifestyle. The, the economy is dynamic. One of the things that I love about VTSAX, which is Vanguard's total stock market index fund, is it's what I call self-cleansing which means that as companies fade away, they drop off the index and you're always getting the benefit of the new blood, the new exciting growing companies that then become the Teslas and the Amazons and the Apples and the Microsofts in the future. One of the criticisms of index funds, because they're cap weighted, which means the more successful the company, the greater percentage of, of it the index owns is a the now, for instance, it's very heavily weighted towards tech. And the critics say you're, you're basically, you're making a bet on tech, which may or may or may not pay off in the future. The point they're missing is that there was a time when it was heavily based on energy because those were the dominant stocks and, and or financials had their day in the sun or industrials at various times have dominated the index. That's a self-cleansing process. I don't know how long technology is going to dominate. What I do know is that I'll, I'll be participating as long as it's dominating. And then if and when it fades away, whatever comes up to replace it, and I have no idea what that'll be, I will benefit from that. Long answer to a simple question. I apologize. Well, that's a great answer. And, you know, I, I want to, when you talk about VTSAX, when you buy in a total stock market, what is the benefit? So when you think about, I like when you talk about the dogs, there's today's dogs might be tomorrow's heroes. And right. you, know, it, it, you might lose 100% of a stock, but you can gain more than 100%. So kind of explain or go into more depth about why VTSAX can be very beneficial to someone's portfolio. So maybe we need to step back a little bit and say the VTSAX is an index fund. I kind of alluded to that earlier. And index funds are funds uh, that are different character than actively managed funds. So an index fund, as we discussed a moment ago, buys everything in the index. So when you own VTSAX, you own virtually every company uh, that's publicly traded in the United States. An actively managed fund, on the other hand, is just what the name implies. It's, it has managers who are trying to pick and choose the companies that will outperform the other companies. And one of the problems, that, that sounds so logical uh, because you say to yourself, well, gee, if I, if I could just avoid the dogs that are in the index, you know, then obviously I'll outperform the index. Or if I can just focus on the, the best companies, the high-performing companies in the index, then obviously I'll do better in the index. But as you just alluded to, 
Sometimes today's dogs are tomorrow's exciting turnaround stories. And sometimes today's hyper successful companies are Enron, which I might be dating myself, but that was a huge successful company that in the collapse of 2008 cratered suddenly, unexpectedly. So it's very, very difficult to accurately predict what the dogs are going to be and what the outperformers are going to be. If I own them all, I don't have to do that. Moreover, I don't have to pay managers to try to do that. So my costs are low. And as Jack Bogle, who's a guy who, who started Vanguard and who created the first index fund, the concept of it, used to say performance comes and goes, but costs are there all the time. Costs are always dragging on your performance. So if you buy an index fund, you've got very, very low costs. And then you just said something very important in asking the question. You said you could only lose 100% if you buy in a stock. And that might not sound very impressive until you put in the context of there's no limit to how much you can gain, right? So if you own the index and some of those companies drift away, and by the way, they'll fall off the index before they go to absolute zero, but still they can go down quite a bit. At the same time, you'll have a company like Tesla as an example, that's coming up that's not just going up 100% or 200%, but multiple thousand percents over time. So in that sense, it's a rigged game, rigged in our favor if we have index funds, mm -hmm. because the ones that drift off have a, have a very limited downside. The sky's the limit for the ones that, that prosper, and you will always own the ones that are coming along. So there is a big announcement, thinking of Tesla, recently, I want to say December maybe, they, they were accepted into the S&P 500, mm -hmm. which is the largest 500 companies in the US. And so people owning an S&P 500 index fund now own Tesla. But in owning uh, BTSAX, a total stock market index fund, my funds owned it since it first went public. Got it, okay. Well, you know, when I was deciding where to put my money in my 403B, like, you know, I'm an educator and right. that's voice. And I really agonized, should I put it in VTSAX or should I put it in the Vanguard 500 fund? Was my, was my agony, was it, you know, should I have agonized over that or not really? Are they, you know, is there much so, of a difference? So that, that's a great, great question. And, and I'm going to kind of almost contradict what I just said in answering it. So... Um, first of all, you, you probably made the right choice. VTSAX is what I suggest, but had you gone into the S and P 500 fund, that also would have been a great choice. So here's the thing I mentioned earlier that these funds are cap weighted, which means they own a bigger percentage of the larger companies. So VTSAX has a very similar portfolio to the S&P 500. In fact, those top 500 companies that make up the S&P 500 are about, I want to say, 80% of the portfolio in VTSAX. And then the other 20% is made up in those mid-cap and small-cap, which is, say, mid-size, small-size companies, which is why we grabbed Tesla early on and not now. And that's why I prefer the total stock market index. But 
frequently when somebody has a, a 401k or a 401b uh, plan, it, they may not be offering a total stock market index fund. Very commonly, they'll be offering an S&P 500 index fund. And that's a, that's a fine choice. There's nothing wrong with it. And if you actually track the performance of these two funds over time, they're very, very close. There's a hair width of, of difference between them. And so, you know, if you had bought the S&P 500 fund and, and we compared notes the day you bought it, uh, 10 years from now, we could sit down and compare notes and one of us will have done better than the other. But it could be in that 10 years that the large cap stocks were in favor and you might have outperformed. So long answer to a simple question, but if you can go with the total stock market for reasons we talked about, but if the S&P 500 is available, that's a great choice. Great, great, that's awesome. That's, uh, I really appreciate that information. Now, you know, obviously everyone wants to get to the point where they are socking away as much money as they possibly can early, as early and as often as they can. However, we all know that there is one huge hindrance that stops a lot of people from saving money. And it's the big debt, the D word, debt. <laughs> what, what, what is your viewpoint on debt? The worst, the worst four letter word in language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I think a, a debt is, is, it's a ball and chain around your ankle. It is, uh, as my friend, Mr. Money Mustache likes to say, if you have debt, especially if you have consumer debt, that's a hair on fire emergency. Uh, debt is the single biggest obstacle to becoming financially independent, to becoming wealthy. Uh, so I've never had debt other than mortgages occasionally. I've never even had a car loan. I have such an aversion to it. To me, it's, it's like being covered with leeches. Uh, and yet, most Americans accept debt as a natural part of, of living. And it's like what, to my mind, you know, it's, it's like saying, well, of course I'm walking around covered with leeches, doesn't everybody? And in our culture, everybody does walk around with debt. But I say, pull out your sharpest knife and start scraping little bloodsuckers off. And until you do that, you will never be financially free. You'll never be financially independent because every dollar you come in has to not only go to pay for your current expenses and hopefully go into your investments for your future freedom, but some of it's getting siphoned off to pay your, um, your creditors. Uh, so it's a, it's a horrible thing. And job one, if you have it, is to get rid of it. Now, the good news is if you organize your financial life in such a fashion, to free up money each month to pay down that debt, you have created a wonderful discipline, right? So every month you're you're putting the maximum you can to get rid of that debt because again, it's it's leeches drawing blood from you. Once that debt's gone, you've got that discipline of setting aside that money, and now instead of paying it to your former creditors you pay it to yourself with investing. And you've already got that, that savings discipline in place. So that's the only advantage I can think of it. Now, obviously, if you don't have debt, you can create the savings discipline and, and start from ground zero. Yes, sir. So, you know, 
let me ask you this. You know, there are some people who believe that when you're trying to crawl your way out of debt, you do the debt snowball. You you list from smallest balance to largest balance, even if the small, you know, the smaller balance is a certain percentage. I believe you feel that the debt avalanche is more advantageous than the snowball, correct? Well, I'm not, I'm not familiar with the term avalanche. I think the snowball is comes from uh, Dave Ramsey, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's supposed to be more psychological, like, hey, I knock these small ones out, then I take that payment and apply it to the next one, where some people say, hey, we just list it from the highest interest rate first, and then we knock out the highest interest rates and work, work like that, because you're going to ultimately save more money by paying off the higher interest rate loans before you pay off the lower interest rate loans. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a hard case in how I think about these things. So there's a lot written, uh, not just about debt payment, but about investing in finance that is designed to cater to, to people's psychology, right? So the snowball, is, as you called it, the, the idea is that you have a bunch of different debts and it's psychologically satisfying to pay, get something completely paid off. So what you should do is you should find the debt, the smallest debt you have and pay that off to get that psychological carrot, if you will, for having done it. And the idea is that then maybe that encourages you to pay off more debt because you've gotten that psychic reward. And I suppose if you need that psychic reward, then maybe that's what you need to do. But for me, I say better to change your psychology because the most financially effective way to do it should be pretty obvious is to look at all the debts you have and say, where am I paying the highest interest rate? Because that's the most expensive debt. And whether it's the largest debt or the smallest debt, pay off that. I mean, because paying that off is what puts more money in your pocket quicker, or more accurately, it's what prevents more money from going out of your pocket quicker. So I say change your psychology, focus on paying down that expensive debt, and do that first. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of psychological crutches. Now, having said that, if you know yourself well enough to know and you say, hey, JL, you know, if I don't get a little psychic reward once in a while, I'm not going to stick to it, then God bless you, you know, Maybe maybe Dave Ramsey is on to something that 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 I'm not I'm not on to. But if it were me, I go with where the numbers take me. Well, and, and I agree with you because I believe that when you're trying to crawl your way out of debt, whether it's ten thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, every penny counts. Absolutely. I mean, if you save an extra ten dollars a month by paying off the higher interest rate first, then you could throw that into your you know into your payment next month. So I just I, I think you have to try to knock out. The highest yeah. first. And I will say this when you're talking about debt, I can still remember to this day when we became debt free. I remember the morning when I actually looked at all my accounts and they were paid off and I went to work. I just felt like a different person. I felt like yeah. I was empowered. I didn't feel like I was going to work for Bank of America or, or Chase or anything. I felt like I was going to work for my family. So I, I do think you have to get out of debt as soon as possible. Yeah. I mean, it's almost literally like, like, you know, for however many years you had the debt, 
every day you walk out of that door and you're dragging this ball of shame along. And maybe you even get so used to it, you don't even notice it, but suddenly if it's unshackled and drops away from you, you're like, holy cow, this is, this feels great. You know, I am much lighter in, in, in body and spirit than I ever dreamed I could possibly be. Getting out of debt is one of the great gifts you can give yourself and your family. I, I agree with you 100%. So let's kind of shift back to investing. If you had a married, married couple and they have $12,000 $12, sitting in their checking account for a Roth IRA on January 1st, do you lump sum invest at $12,000, $6,000 each, or do you spread it out $500 each month? <laughs> hands, hands down, if you're me, you lump sum it. Okay. Okay. And why is that? I, I was hoping you'd ask. <laughs> so, so here, here, assuming now, first of all, we're assuming that when you're putting it into your Roth IRA, you're, you're investing in stocks that that's the investment we're talking about and that you're investing in VTSAX. And if it's in a, if it's an IRA, there's no reason you, because you can choose any fund at that point. You're not limited to the choices of an employer plan. So there's no reason not to go into VTSAX. So let's say that's what you're doing. The key thing to understand is the stock market goes up much more often than it goes down, right? In fact, it goes up about three years out of four. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't go up three years and then drop four and then go up three years, you know, that would be nice and predictable, but that's not the way the world works. But on average, it, it goes up three times as often as it goes down. So when you put your lump sum in, you are basically making a bet that you have a 75% chance of winning, which is that every month from there on, the market will go up and go up and go up over the course of the year and it will be up by the end of the year. There's a 25% chance you'll be wrong. And if it happens to be that year, you would have been better off dollar cost averaging. But you've got to play the odds, it seems to me. And, and, and if I have a choice of going, making a choice that I've got a 75% chance of winning versus 25%, it seems to be a pretty obvious choice. The only time dollar cost averaging works is if the stock stays flat and that doesn't help you, it trades within a very narrow range, or in this case, the fund, or if it goes down. And as we've said, that's very unlikely. Now, the reason that dollar cost averaging is so appealing to people is they have the very reasonable fear of what happens if I, if I put that money in my Roth all at once, and then tomorrow's the day that the market plunges 40%. And the market is a very volatile beast. It is, it is possible that it could plunge 40% the next day. It's unlikely that it'll be that particular day, but the market does plunge by 40% on a fairly, not frequent basis, but on a regular basis. That's just part of the process. And I can understand that fear, but would you, what the way to look at it is you say, well, let's suppose you took that money and you, and you dollar cost averaged it in equal parts over the course of the year. And let's suppose the, the market stayed flat basically. So it didn't hurt you to do that. Didn't help you particularly, didn't hurt you. 
And in December, you make the very last of those payments. And then the next day, that's when it plunges 40%. So by dollar cost averaging, you haven't eliminated that risk. You've eliminated it for that immediate day, but the moment you've made that last payment, you're at risk. In fact, another way to think about that is every moment of every day that you're invested, you're running the risk that the next day is going to be when it drops 40%. And this gets on into a whole nother topic we, we might want to talk about, which is volatility and, and why that really doesn't matter long-term. Now, the short answer to that is because while it drops 40%, as well, it dropped last spring, just about this time, actually, last year, with COVID, it dropped, I think, 32% within a week or something, as a great example of what I'm talking about. But of course it came back and the market always comes back and it always marches on to greater heights, which is why two things to think about market drops. One is they're part of the process. They're common. They're not unusual. It's not the end of the world. Like the media will be telling you at the time. And it's just something you have to live with. You can't predict it. So you just keep going and you just keep investing. And by the way, last thing on dollar cost averaging, Obviously, if you are building your investments out of your earned income and you're putting aside uh, part of your monthly income into your investing, by definition, now you are also dollar cost averaging, but you don't really have an option then. You can only invest money that you have, right? So in that case, I'm in favor of dollar cost averaging, but the way you presented it, which is the correct way, is what if you have a lump sum? Because that's the only time you actually have a decision to make. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. So last year, I you know my wife and I we were we had our money tied up in a investment property in a flip. So when the yeah. market when the market tanked, I was like, man, I need that money so I can max it out. Like I was excited <laughs> because I figured I can get way more shares. So then we end up selling the investment property and then we put some money into it, but yeah. the chatter was that it would drop some more. So I waited to put the rest into our Roth IRAs. It didn't drop, it went up. So I got less shares than I would have gotten if I just put everything in at once. So that kind of goes along with what you just said. You know, it's it's interesting because uh, last spring, uh, I am a big proponent if, if anybody's aware of my work or if they, after listening to us today, they turn to it and they, they read it. I am a big proponent that market drops don't matter. They're always temporary. Unless, until, until the United States of America disappears or until civilization ends, the market will always recover, right? Because if it were not to recover from a collapse of what, for whatever reason, then by definition, the country is, is at an end. Um, so I have a great confidence in that. Uh, with COVID last year, I had a lot of people telling me, you know, Jim, I, I understand what you've said. I agree with you, but this time it's different because this time it's a pandemic. Well, it's always something different. I mean, the market crashes on a, on a, you know, fairly regular basis. It, it drops more than crashes too, of course, on a fair, even more regular basis. And it's always, there's always something that triggers it. And it's always something we don't expect. And it's always different. So what I was telling people at the time is it's not different. I mean, it's different in that 
that it's it's a pandemic that's triggering it, and that's a different trigger. But the fact it's dropping is not different. The trigger is just different. And this trigger is particularly heinous because, of course, people are dying. Uh, and that makes it different. But in terms of how the market's going to perform, it doesn't matter whether it was, it was the overextended uh, uh, housing situation in 2008 or the pandemic in 2020. Got it. So let's let's have a hypo, let's create a hypothetical situation. We have two best friends. They both graduated from college in 2011. They get your book. They read your book, and they each decide to put ten thousand dollars into VTSAX in 2013. Unfortunately, let's say around March 1st of 2020, one of those best friends he he passed. He died. The other one. On March 25th, he saw where the market was going and he decided, hey, I need to put my money in bonds and keep it safe. How would those two individuals' accounts look today on March 2nd, 2021? Well, obviously the, the, the fellow who died, not that it will do him any good, but for his benefit is theirs because he, doesn't, he didn't tinker with his holdings. He has done much better. The worst thing you can do with tinkering with your investments is to tinker with them. Uh, Warren Buffett uh, famously said in an interview that I'm going to get the numbers a little bit incorrect, but looking at the last century in 1900, the market was trading at 60, I think. And Buffett says, you know, it's trading at 60 in 1900 and 2000, it's closing at 11,650. How do you possibly lose money in a market like that? And of course, the answer is you try to dance in and out of it. That's the answer Buffett gives. Nobody can time the market. So your hypothetical guy who says, I'm, you know, I see this COVID thing coming. I'm going to go into bonds. Um, let's suppose that, that he, he made that decision before the market crashed. He just had better vision than everybody else around him. And he got out and the market crashes and he's safe in his bonds. And then his vision is so good that when it gets down to that 32 level point, he says, ah, this is the bottom. And then he gets back in and he's holding until now. Well, obviously he's done far, far better. He's also done something that's not really possible. I mean, it's, it's, he's got to get two things right. And then if you're going to, if that's the way you're going to invest, you got to get those two things right over and over and over again. And I certainly wasn't hearing anybody who was selling because of COVID and the market dropping when it was down 32% saying, ah, now's the time to get back in. They were all saying it's going to go lower. Nobody can, can time the market. And how can I say that so confidently? Well, if you could time the market in the way I just described reliably, you would be a hundred times, a thousand times richer than Warren Buffett and far more lionized. It would be the ultimate financial superpower. And so if anybody actually had that superpower, we would be aware of it. Just like if Superman were <laughs> out around leaping tall buildings in a single bound, we'd notice. And there was only one person, I think in the eighties that actually accurately predicted it, but it was by luck, correct? Because everybody was predicting so, yeah, so I, I'm not sure who you're referring to. There's, 
Are you if you're talking about the uh, Black Monday in '87? Yes, '87. Black yeah, Monday. yeah. So in '87, there was a there was a woman on Wall Street. I think she was fairly had a fairly junior position with one of the firms. Her name was Elaine Garzarelli. And in for anybody who doesn't know, in in October, I forget the exact day, but in October 1987, the stock market took the single biggest single day plunge in history to this date. Uh, dropped 25 percent in a day. It's never happened before, hasn't happened since in one day. And this woman, Elaine Garzarelli, and this happened like October and somewhere around late August, early September, she predicted that it was going to do this, maybe not in a day, but it was going to take this massive dive in the very near future. And she was right. And it was documented. A lot of people after the fact claimed to have predicted things, but in her case, you know, she was on the record with her clients as telling them that this was going to happen. So it was documented. Well, of course, she immediately shot to great fame because she'd made this prediction and everybody was assuming ah, this woman has the magic touch. She can see the future. Well, of course, she can't. And she was never able to repeat that accomplishment, not because there's anything wrong with Elaine Garzarelli or not because she suddenly got stupid. I'm sure she was the same bright, accomplished woman after as before. It's just that the world mistook luck for skill. So the analogy I like to draw, and, and we do this all the time, and people on Wall Street prey on this. They try to create the image that they have this skill because, of course, money flocks to them if they do. But the analogy I use is, let's suppose, as recently, you know, the uh, lottery was up to some extraordinary amount of money, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's, let's suppose you're sitting around and, and you're talking about it with your friends and you all go out buy lottery tickets because why not, you know, if you can win a billion dollar lottery. And by golly, one of your friends wins. You know, one of your friends happens to be the, the, the person who, who had the winning numbers. Now, you're all going to be congratulating. You're all going to be trying to be much better friends with them. <laughs> but none of you are going to sit back and say, holy cow, Charlie figured out how to win, pick winning lottery numbers. No, you're going to be sitting back and saying, holy cow, Charlie really got lucky. Yeah, yeah, true. Because, of course, that's what happened. Charlie didn't discover some new way to pick lottery numbers. Somebody's numbers were going to come up, and it just happened to be Charlie's. Going back to Wall Street, at any given time, somebody, because there's so many people predicting what's going to go on in Wall Street, somebody is predicting what's going to happen, just because there's so many predictions being made. So somebody, in fact, more likely, some several somebodies are going to be right no matter what the market does. Doesn't mean that they have, have predictive powers. It means that everybody's buying a lottery ticket and somebody's going to get, somebody's numbers are going to turn up. Great, great points. Well, you know, I will say this and then people, they think I'm a financial expert because I talk about finances a lot. So I do have people reach out to me quite often and one thing that frustrates me is when you know, people ask me for advice or whatever. And I say, like, for instance, last year, when the market tanked, I said, I told people, do not sell, don't sell, don't sell. 
when you sell when the market is low, then you're locking in your losses. And I, I know at least three people that sold, you know, at the bottom of the market. So that just proves like when you get in, you have to stay in the long term and you can't dance in and out the market, like you said. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that might be the single most critical thing to being successful, at least if you're following the simple path that, that I advocate. And I have said on many occasions, and, and I've written it on my blog, that my approach doesn't work if you're going to panic and sell. In fact, if you're going to if you're going to panic and sell when the market's down, my approach will leave you bleeding by the side of the road. You should not you should not be doing what I recommend. It depends on you being willing and able to weather the storm. In fact, I, I did a guest post from a friend of mine a couple of years ago. Uh, I can't think of the exact title, but if you if you go on the blog, you're curious, and in the search bar, you put in WARM, because that's the acronym he uses, and I don't remember what those letters stand for, but you put in WARM, and he talks about an all-cash strategy. So it's very important in investing, before you put in a dime, to to really understand, as the philosophers say, know thyself, right? It's critical. And there's nothing wrong with, with looking inside yourself and saying, you know what? I know that I couldn't tolerate seeing 40% of my investment disappear overnight. Nothing wrong with that. You know, that doesn't make you a weak person or a lesser person. That's just your psychology. And if you feel that way, if you look in deep inside yourself and you say, you know, I know that if the market drops 40, 50%, I, it's, 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 I don't, just don't want to deal with that. I don't want to, it's not a psychological thing that I want to have to deal with. Then you should find in a different investment strategy than the one I outlined, because you've got to be willing to ride those storms. And you've got to be willing to know, not just in your head, but in your gut, that the storms, however terrible they seem, with all the media screaming about, you know, the world's coming to an end, that it's not true and that things will get better. Might take a while, might take a couple of years. You know, the turnaround last year was phenomenally quick. Uh, we can't expect that all the time. But you have to know. And then if you're if you're building your investments over time, those drops actually actually work in your favor. Because if you're putting the same amount of money in every month as my daughter does now, then every time the market drops, you get to buy shares on sale. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I've said that for young people who are beginning to build their wealth, the best thing that could possibly happen for them is a major market crash because they're just beginning to put their money in. And as long as you keep putting money in, the market crashes actually work in your favor. But again, you gotta, you gotta tie yourself to the mast, not let the sirens lure you onto the rocks. I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. So let's say someone is ready to you know, begin saving for their future. And they, they're, you know, they're terrified of the market. They, you know, whatever you said today doesn't make any difference to them. They say, I'm just going to put it in a online savings account or in bonds or something very safe. What would you say to them, especially considering they have maybe 
30 to 40 years until retirement. Yeah, well, that, that's if the first thing I'd, I would say is, is go to my blog and, and put in warm and, and read th that guy's post on basically holding and investing in cash. Um, you know, it's, I would never try to talk somebody out of that because they may, what they may be saying to me or to you is that, hey, I understand my psychology well enough to know that, well, I, well, I might know in, in my head that when the market crashes, it's gonna come back. In my gut, I know I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be able to handle it and I'm gonna sell. And then as I say, if you sell when the market crashes, my approach is gonna leave you bleeding by the side of the road. You'll be better off with just cash or bonds. The problem with that is, especially long term, is that stocks so dramatically outperform that you will have a much longer road in accumulating wealth than you would otherwise. And so, again, I would I would never say to somebody who said I I, I just don't want to take the risk of stocks. I would never try to persuade them to take it. But on the other hand, I think it's a great tragedy to invest your money for 30 years in something that is, you're going to be running hard to stay in place because you're also losing money to inflation. You know, the value of your cash is going down. So stocks are an incredibly powerful engine for building wealth, but they're incredibly volatile and you have to be willing to tolerate that volatility. And when it comes to balancing, so a question I get frequently is, well, how much stock should I have versus bonds, right? And bonds are ballast in your portfolio. That's why they're there. They're there to, to smooth the ride, the wild ride of stock volatility. So the more bonds you add, the smoother the ride will be. But stocks dramatically outperform bonds over time. So the more bonds you add, the lower your performance over time will be. And only, you know, every individual has to make the decision for themselves as to what's more important to them, performance or a smooth ride. This goes back to the psychology thing we talked about earlier um, with debt, where I say, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in adjusting your psychology rather than adjusting your investments to your psychology because adjusting your investments to your psychology is is expensive over time in terms of lost but again if you got to be sure you can actually adjust your psychology there's some great points this is, this is great questions by the way thank you hey i appreciate that i appreciate that so you know obviously we talk about financial security and i believe part of being financially responsible and being financially secure means that you have to have a solid emergency fund in place. What do you think about emergency funds? How much should you have and where should you park that money? So I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a contrarian when it comes to emergency funds. So I, I don't, I'm not sure everybody needs to have one. I don't have one as an example. So the wealthier you are, the less you need an emergency fund. And that's probably pretty logical. Depending on, on, on what you have in your life also depends on whether you need an emergency fund. So for instance, let's suppose you live in a city and you rent an apartment 
and you don't own a car. Well, there are very few economic emergencies that are going to affect you. Well, let's suppose that you own a house and you're out in the suburbs and you own a car, maybe a couple of cars, and maybe the cars are older because you haven't fallen into the trap of car payments, so that's a good thing. But now, you know, older cars break down occasionally, and so maybe you got a, you'll be hit with a $1,500 transmission repair out of the blue, or maybe the water heater in your house goes out. Well, now you need a different emergency fund, especially if you don't have a lot of invested assets. So the more invested assets you have, the less of an emergency fund you need. So if you are completely out of debt and you have some assets going on and you have good credit, which you probably do, I would say I wouldn't, I wouldn't have an emergency fund because again, and if you have one, by the way, and you need to hold it in cash, so cash is pretty unproductive. I'd rather have the, say, $2,000 emergency fund invested in earning money for me. And then if I have an emergency, I'll drop it on my credit card. And because emergencies, by definition, don't happen all that often. So there's a lot of different ways to look at them. But if you're going to have one, if you decide, yeah, you know, I, I don't have a lot of invested assets. Uh, maybe I'm still working my way out of debt. Actually, if you're working your way out of debt, I would not have an emergency fund. I'd put it against the debt because you can always use your credit card for the emergency if you have to, better to pay off the debt now. And if you have to add the debt later, you know, then you do that. But if you're even and, you know, you've, you've got some things that might cause you emergencies like a house and a car, then keep it and keep it in cash. Yeah, so we had the Vanguard Money Market Fund, and that's where we yeah. would keep our uh, escrow for our home taxes. That's where we will keep our escrow for the next year Roth IRA, and that's where we will basically hold everything. But I will be incredibly frustrated because when you look at it, it's like there's zero yield, basically. I'm like, man, I could really be doing something else with it. So this year, for the first time, we actually have that money sitting in, in stocks and, well, index funds. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like, hey, if if the market goes up 60 to 75 percent of the time, it makes more sense to keep that in in index funds than in a, a cash account, which is literally bringing you nothing. So yeah. I, I appreciate that. If somebody wants to get started with VTSAX because they read your book, they listen to this particular video or the podcast, I will tell you the only thing that frustrates me about VTSAX is that you need $3,000 to get started. Right. So, yeah. So the alternatives I've seen, if you have a thousand is that you can do like a retirement 2060 account. And I believe it's only, yeah, it's only a thousand dollars, but it's like 90% in VTSAX and then a little bit in the bond fund or something like that. Or you can do VTI, which is an the, the ETF. Can you kind of explain what an ETF is so that if someone who wants to get started with VTSAX, they can go ahead and get started through a VTI or some kind of ETF? Sure. So first of all, let me say that I, I, I agree. You just, you just named two really good ways to get started. So I agree with you on both of those. Uh, and VTI, which is, as you mentioned, is an ETF. ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund. And without getting too deep in the weeds, uh, VTI owns exactly the same portfolio as VTSAX. So when you own VTI, 
you own the same portfolio as VTSAX. They are interchangeable in that regard. VTI, the exchange traded fund, it was designed to allow you to buy the fund like you'd buy a stock. And so you can buy just one share of VTI and I haven't looked at it recently. I think that's like a hundred bucks a share or something now. So you could literally go and buy one share of VTI from Vanguard. So there'd be no um, commission on it. And, and now you're in the game for a hundred bucks or 150 bucks or whatever the shares are going for at this, at this time. Um, and you could hold VTA, you could hold VTI forever and you'd be holding essentially the same portfolio. Um, so there you go. I, I, you know, I prefer VTSAX. I prefer the fund probably because when I started investing, there weren't exchange traded funds and I'm more comfortable with it. And I'm not, you know, exchange traded funds were created to facilitate trading in these things. And I don't believe in trading. I, I will own my VTSAX literally forever. I'll never sell it. Uh, you know, when I'm living on it, I might sell off tiny little pieces of it to, you know, to, to um, provide for my spending, but I'll never sell it. I'll pass it on uh, to my charities and, and, and to my kid. And, and uh, she has the instructions to never sell it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just no reason to sell it because you own, basically you own the, the publicly traded segment of the United States, which I think is a pretty good bet. Pretty and cool. by the way, if, if, if you don't have faith in the future yeah. of the United States, and some people don't, uh, then obviously the, my approach is also not one that you, that you want to follow. It does, it does suppose a a belief that the United States has a, a good future. And I, that is my belief. That's pretty awesome, man. I, and I agree with you 100%. Now, you know, I'm also a fan of Fidelity, not as much as Vanguard, but I, I do love the fact that with Fidelity, you can drop in $25 a month. And that's how I got my, my kids started with their UGMA, Uniform Gift Transfer to Minors Act or something. Yeah. $25 a month, yeah. And, and, and they're doing it into... FZROX, which is the zero, zero fee fund, which is pretty similar to VTSAX. Now, if someone decides, hey, we're going to go ahead and do $25 a month into FZROX, once you hit $3,000, would you recommend them just go ahead and stay there or would you recommend them to transfer that over to VTSAX? Uh, <laughs> so uh, I don't like Fidelity but not because it's a bad place to invest. So anybody who's invested with Fidelity can feel confident that they, you know, they have a good investment. And I, I forget the ticker you mentioned, but it is exactly, it's Fidelity's version of VTSAX. And like VTSAX, it holds the total stock market index. So you're buying the same kind of investment. Um, so would I, and I'll talk a minute about my feelings about fidelity, uh, which don't have anything to do with investment so much, but would I switch it over to Vanguard? I probably would because Vanguard is unique in all investment companies in that it is structured, again, by Jack Bogle, 
uh, who's passed away now, but he structured it so that we, the people who own the funds, own the company. So there is a direct alignment between Vanguard's best interests and the investor's best interest. Every other investment company has to serve two masters. Vanguard's the only one that doesn't have to. Because we, the investor, are both the owners and the investor. But Fidelity, which is a privately held company, um, has two masters. It has you, the investor, which of course they want to serve well enough that you'll stick around. But they also, and more importantly from their point of view, they want to serve the owners of the company. This is true of, let's say, T. Rowe Price, which is a publicly traded investment company. So they certainly want to serve their investors or the investors will go away. But more importantly, they're trying to serve their shareholders, which are their owners. So their, their interests are not precisely aligned with ours. Um, the other thing, and this, is, this goes back a long time, when Jack Bogle created the first index fund in 1975, the industry was horrified because it gave a better deal to investors, which of course took money out of their pocket. And collectively, they, they did everything they could to strangle the idea in its crib. And Fidelity in particular uh, took the lead in that charge. Fidelity came out with a series of ads making spurious charges about indexing, including that it was un-American. Jack Bogle, in a brilliant move, by the way, took those ads and framed them and mounted them in his office. Class act. So I have a little bit of a hostility towards Fidelity for those reasons. We index funds um, are the greatest thing to happen to the individual investor ever. Mm. And if it had been up to Fidelity and the other companies, I don't, they certainly weren't alone in that. They never would have seen the light of day. Now they provide them because competitively they have to. And the last thing I'll say is that with that no fee fund, um, that's great that it's no fee and that's certainly good for you, the investor. But from an ethical point of view, it bothers me because it's not like there's no cost to running that fund. So by definition, they're taking the cost of running that fund and putting it on their shareholders that own other funds. And I have a bit of an ethical issue with that. So I would rather pay this 0.04% uh, expense ratio to BTSAX. Than so you, say that, you mean a yeah. loss, loss leader or something like that? Yeah, I think it's a loss leader. Obviously, what they're hoping is they'll get you into their, uh, into their fold and you'll be happy with them. And by the way, in fairness, from everything I've ever heard, Fidelity provides great service. Uh, you know, it's, you're not going to have to worry. Nobody at Fidelity is going to steal your money or anything like that. So it's a perfectly sound place to do business with. I don't mean to apply otherwise. But clearly, they don't want you in the index fund. They would much rather have you in their actively managed funds. And that will be their hope is that you know, you'll make a move over. And again, in fairness, Vanguard also has actively managed funds. Um, I'm a little horrified by that personally, because it's, 
it's straying from the one true faith, in my view, that Jack Bogle created. But, you know, like any organization, they want to grow and prosper, and they know certain investors want actively managed funds, and so they provide them. Okay. We're, we, you know, we're, we're, we're getting in the flow. We're kind of getting closer to the end. You've just dropped some serious knowledge on people. Let me tell you, when I, the first thing I learned financially out of college was to buy term and invest the difference when it comes to, to life insurance. What, is mm -hmm. your, what are your thoughts on that? So I, I'm not an insurance guy. Um, I've never owned life insurance. Uh, other than occasionally I've worked for companies that provided it. And obviously I, you know, I took what they provided. Um, everything I've ever heard suggests that term is the way to go because when you buy term insurance, you are, you are just buying insurance for a given period of time for a given amount of money. So that if something bad, assuming that you're taking insurance on yourself, that if something bad happens to you, if you die, there will be money to help support your family. Um, other kinds of life insurance, and again, I'm not an expert in them, combine aspects of being an investment with providing insurance protection for loss of life. And they tend to be very high fee and they tend to be lower performance. So I think you're making the right decision to split the two. Your investments are investments, insurance is insurance. And that means term is the way to go. The other thing I'll say is the only person, the only people who should carry term insurance are people who are earning an income that their family is dependent on. So if you're single, there's no reason to carry life insurance. Nobody's depending on you. If you are married without children and your wife is working or your husband's working, there's no reason to carry insurance unless you've created a lifestyle that requires both incomes, which I would suggest is a mistake, at least in my world. If you're married and you have children, whether you're both working or only one person's working, now it's a different story. Because if one of those incomes goes away, you now have a single parent with only one income and also the burden of taking care of those children by his or herself. So in those cases, I would look at insurance. But the more financially strong you become, the closer to financial independence you become, the less you need insurance because the more you have that powerful investment portfolio backing you up. And the whole idea of having an investment portfolio is to ultimately replace your need to trade your labor for income. And now your investments are creating the income you need to live on. And every, every dollar you save and invest makes you that much stronger. So it's not an on-off switch, right? The moment you start, you get a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger until finally you're there 100%. And the further along that path you are, the less, the less awful it would be to suddenly lose your income. And so the less you need life insurance. Makes total sense. That makes total sense to me. Well, you know, you have a teacher who is graduating college. She's 23 years old. And, you know, she knows she's going to get a pension from her state maybe 60 to 65% of pension after she works for about 35 years in order to supplement her retirement. What kind of advice would you give to her right now moving forward? 
So, I, I you know, I, I think that pensions, and for that matter, Social Security, are probably likely to be there in 35 years for. But I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket. And I've never had it. Well, I, I had a small pension at one point that I cashed out, but I haven't had that kind of teacher pension over 35 years, which theoretically can be a lucrative one, as I as I understand. But I would say I'd, I'd want to invest so that I had a backup. And the worst that's going to happen is the, the pension's there. And I've got my backup investments and, and I, even, I have even more resources. Um, so I guess that would be my advice is I wouldn't personally rely just on a pension. And of course, the other side of that coin is 35 years is a long period of time. And no matter how much you love teaching, you know, in 10 years, you might say, you know, I, this has been a great 10 years. I've loved every minute of it, but I want to go do something else. There's some other new opportunity opened up. And now that pension is not necessarily going to be, well, it's definitely not going to be the same as it would have been otherwise. So if you depend on that pension, you're also locking yourself into the time frame to earn it. Got it. So simply put, when we talk about the simple path to wealth, you really want to get out of debt and stay out of debt and invest long-term early and often in index funds, such as VTSAX with Vanguard. If I just had to put it in simple terms, that's kind of what we're looking at, correct? Yeah, it's, it's avoid debt, uh, live on less than you earn, and invest the difference. That's and if you do those three things, you'll, you'll wind up wealthy. And you'll wind up wealthy in more than just money because it's a, it's a psychologically healthy way to live, it seems to me. That's, that's great. Well, I have one question before I let you go. <laughs> he said, what is the main difference between investing in VTSAX and VYM, which is Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF? I get the logic of investing in VTSAX, but it only has a dividend yield of 1.42%, while VYM's is 3.19. I'm wondering what's the difference between the two. So great question. Um, the difference is, is it VYM? VYM. High VYM. So, so VYM, if it's, if it's yielding a high dividend, is by definition investing in large... Uh, at least currently stable companies that because those are the kinds of companies that pay high dividends. VTSAX, as we talked about earlier, invests in the entire stock market. So you're basically investing in large cap value funds when you're investing for a dividend. And the important thing to understand is that a dividend is only one way companies return value to shareholders. And in many ways, it's the least desirable of all the ways because it's a taxable event. Mm -hmm. So the moment, you're, the, the year that a company pays a dividend, now if you have it in a tax advantage account like an IRA, this doesn't count, but if you own it outside of that, the moment you get that dividend, it's a taxable event in that year, you have to pay tax on it. So a company, instead of paying a dividend, for instance, might buy back some of its shares that has the effect of making the remaining shares worth more money, that puts more money in the, in the stockholder's pocket. 
a company like Tesla, for instance, isn't going to pay a dividend because Elon Musk is saying, you know, rather than paying out the money that Tesla's earning, I can make much more money for my shareholders investing that money in the business and building it. So that's true of a, that's called a growth company. Uh, that was Apple until fairly recently, Apple started paying a small dividend. So if you focus on just dividend paying companies, you're gonna miss the powerful growth of companies on, on the way up. And you're gonna be investing in a lot of companies that might be on the verge of becoming the next General Motors or General Electric or Xerox or Polaroid that are had been great companies, but are entering the twilight of their existence rather than the, than the sunrise of it. And so there is that risk too. Dividends are only one part of the, of, of, of the equation of how you get value from owning stocks. And in many ways, it's in my view, the least desirable. I'm much more interested in growing along with the business. I'm happy to get the dividends that BTSX goes off. So it's nice to have a Nice to have that as a little bit of spice on the on the plate, if you will. Yeah, and I always have them reinvest my dividends. So. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> well, JL, it's been real. I mean, we can do this for hours and hours and hours. Of course, I'm up for it if you are. <laughs> <laughs> We're not gonna hold you that long. My my kids probably are ready to for daddy to come home and have dinner. But you know, I just want to remind the audience. You know, we're giving away five copies of the Simple Path to Wealth because whatever JL talked talk to us about today, it's not gonna be nearly enough, you know, when you talk about his stock series on jlcollinsnh.com and his book, The Simple Path to Well. So once again, please like this video, share the video, and then go over to YouTube, The Wealthy Educator, subscribe, and then shoot an email to thewealthyeducator at gmail.com, and you will be one of, well, we'll pick five people on this coming Friday to receive a free copy of the book. If you're not one of those lucky five people, please be sure to spend the money and get this book and then Google J.L. Collins. And he, there's so much YouTube content out there. And if you want to change your financial lives today, please listen to this man. He is amazing. He is the F.I. GOAT and we really appreciate him. J.L., thank you so much for being on the show today. We appreciate you and I hope you stay safe out there. Well, the, the same to you. It's been an honor to hang out with you and I appreciate all the great questions and let's do it again another time. Yes, sir. I will definitely take you up on that. <laughs> All right, man. Have a, have a great evening and, and uh, happy birthday uh, to Nia. Hey, thank you so much. She will be happy to hear that. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.